So friends, here's the sitch. Apparently, a conflict had bubbled up among the members of the early church community in Rome. Uh, and I recognize that that is probably hard for a lot of us to believe, church folk being notoriously easygoing. Not at all want to squabble over foolish things, not at all prone to, to splintering into new denominations over, over minor disagreements. But surprising and hard as it may be for us to believe, a conflict had indeed bubbled up among the members of this early church in Rome. And their conflict was one that to us may seem a bit strange, but I assure you it, it certainly made more sense at the time. You see, their conflict was one that centered on a disagreement over the appropriateness of eating meat. And specifically the kind of meats that were prohibited according to Jewish purity codes as found in my favorite book of the Bible and yours, the book of Leviticus. The battle lines of this conflict were clearly drawn. So on the one side you had Jewish converts to Christianity who believed that you should not and could not eat such meats. And then on the other side you had non-Jewish converts to Christianity or what the Bible would call Gentile converts to Christianity, who believed that it was perfectly okay and acceptable for Christians to eat such meats. So what we have going on in this morning's passage, Romans chapter 14, what we have going on is the Apostle Paul weighing into this controversy in the hopes of settling it once and for all. So that's what we have going on at a macro level in this passage. And as we zoom in now on Paul's specific advice to this church community in the midst of their conflict, uh, what we need to keep in mind about our friend Paul is that he was a real stickler for doctrinal purity. That is, he cared very deeply that, that people had a correct understanding of their faith and that they correctly understood the implications of that faith for how they should live their lives. And this is true to the extent that Paul did not hesitate to call out even other apostles if he thought that they had somehow gone astray from the gospel that they had been sent to proclaim. And so, true, true to form, Paul starts out today's passage decisively. He comes down decisively on the side of those who believe that it is perfectly okay and acceptable to eat meat. Paul even goes so far as to fix labels to either side of this conflict. To the believers who thought that they shouldn't eat meat, he affixes the label weak. And to those who believe they could eat meat, he affixes the label strong. Now that, that is some fairly loaded terminology to be sure. Uh, but with these labels weak and strong, Paul is not commenting, it needs to be said, on their physical strength. Nor is he commenting on their mental acuity nor is he even commenting on the relative strength of their faith per se. Rather, what Paul is commenting on is their ability to see the implications of their faith for how they should live their lives. And the weak, the weak are, are those who still have a little bit of legalism, a little bit of Phariseeism kicking around in their hearts that is telling them that it is by their actions that they earn God's love. So, so uh, of course they believe they need to be careful uh, not to eat ritually unclean foods. They're worried that if they do, they might get kicked out, that they might be excluded 
from God's love. The strong, however, the strong are those who correctly understand that God's love is a gift. They know they didn't do anything to earn it. They know they didn't do anything to deserve it. It is just a freely given gift from God to them. And so they recognize that it matters not one iota what they eat or drink because it has no bearing on God's love whatsoever. If you didn't do anything to earn God's love in the first place, the flip side of that is you can't do anything to lose it either. Now, given Paul's penchant for doctrinal purity, one might expect, certainly I would expect, that in response to this situation in Rome, Paul would simply call out the weak for their wrongheadedness and tell them to get with the program. But that's not what Paul does, is it? Instead, what Paul does is he throws a bit of a curveball. Paul doesn't tell the weak just to get in line. He doesn't tell them to start acting more like the strong. Rather, what Paul does is he speaks to both of these groups and tells each of them to stop condemning the other over inconsequential matters such as this. So long as you believe in God's love, so long as you trust that Jesus will help you ground your life in that love, everything else Paul is saying is just window dressing and is not worth fighting over. Let it go. However, however, and this is a pretty big however, however, says Paul, if anyone needs to change in this situation, it is the strong who need to change. That is, it is those who are right who need to change. If eating certain foods is causing distress to the weaker members of your community, even though you and I both know that you're in the right, says Paul, out of love for them, you should simply stop eating it. That is, you should change for their sake because you should not want to be a stumbling block for any sibling in Christ. Even though you are 100% in the right, says Paul, it is incumbent on you to change. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but personally, I find that to be a, a, a rather hard teaching to swallow. It feels even a little un-American, doesn't it? This is not the flag-waving, eagle-soaring, sort of rugged individualism that we're used to. Because what Paul is saying here, just to be perfectly clear, what Paul is saying is that you can be the perfect Christian. You can understand Christian doctrine perfectly. You can understand its implications for how you should live perfectly. You can be a paragon of Christian virtue in your day-to-day -day life, but if your perfection is somehow causing a problem for a weaker member of your community, you are the one who needs to do things differently. Would the people of God say, ugh, ugh, right? That doesn't, that doesn't feel good, does it? That doesn't feel right. I, I'm the one who correctly understands my faith, and yet I'm the one who needs to change? Ugh. Ugh. 
Ugh. And that begs the question, doesn't it? it? It begs an important question for us this morning, a question that is at the very heart of this text, Romans chapter 14. Why even bother? Why bother being in a faith community full of people who from time to time at least will get on your nerves, will aggravate you, will raise your blood pressure, and will cause you to have to change your ways even though you are right? Why bother? Why not just stay at home, read your Bible, pray a little, and live your life as you know it ought to be lived? Why bother? And moreover, and perhaps even more to the point, I mean, here we are, two different churches, two different cultures, two different identities, two different ways of doing things, certainly two different ways of saying the Lord's Prayer, just for instance, two different ways of bearing the gospel in the world. But somehow over the course of this pandemic, we got just thrown together into this thing, and here we be. No one signed up for this. This was not part of either of our strategic plans. Uh, so why not just pack up and go back to our own little corners of Medford, rather than sticking together and trying to make this work? Why be with people who might cause us to have to change? Again, I ask, why bother? Why bother with community? Well, that famous author and theologian C.S. Lewis takes up this exact question in his book, The Four Loves. Now, in one section of this book, Lewis talks about a famous literary group of which he was a part called The Inklings. Uh, which was basically just a group of authors who got together on a regular basis to talk about literary type things, uh, whatever that may be. And while this was actually quite a large group, a particularly deep friendship had formed between three of its members. C.S. Lewis, a guy by the name of Charles Williams, and none other than J.R.R. Tolkien himself, who Lewis lovingly and affectionately called by his first name, or I suppose rather his second first name, Ronald. Now, at some point, their mutual friend Charles had passed away. Uh, and in this book, C.S. Lewis is reflecting on the new dynamics of his relationship with Ronald since their friend had passed. Um, and this is what he writes. I'm going to read it to you. He says this. He says, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all its facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, far from having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I actually have less of Ronald. So what C.S. Lewis is getting at here is that it, it takes a, a whole community. It takes a whole community just to get to really know a single individual. 
It takes a whole community, he's saying, to even get to know a single human being, to pull out all their different traits and characteristics and quirks. And if that is true of a single human being, C.S. Lewis goes on to argue, how much truer, how much truer is it of God? And the reason for faith communities like this, the reason they are worth the hassle, is that together we get a fuller picture of God's goodness. Together we get a fuller picture of Christ's grace. Together we get a fuller picture of the Spirit's working in our lives and in our world than we could ever, ever, ever get on our own. So may we, vegans and, and vegetarians and committed carnivores, may we, trespassers and sinners, may we, hillsiders and sanctuarians, may we, may all of us be open to the fullness of God revealed in communities just like this. In Jesus' name. Amen.